You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay, welcome everybody to the Melbourne Law School um, and to the Institute for International Law and the Humanities, uh, ILLA's seminar on the rise of populism and international law. Um, my name's Margaret Young. I'm a professor here at the law school and just newly director of ILLA. Um, I'm delighted to be, to be here with uh, Dr. Alice Palmer, who also has a role within ILLA and who has facilitated our very distinguished visitors attending today to deliver their lecture. I'll hand it over to Alice to introduce our speakers, but first I wanted to acknowledge the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations upon whose land the law school stands, and we pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I also wanted to thank our speakers for drawing our attention to this important theme, uh, because we are often thinking about the impact that populism has on international law, but it's rarely asked what role international law has had in rise of populism. So we're being, I think, taken through a very novel and interesting set of research questions today. I look forward to your engagement both uh, during the seminar and afterwards in the Q&A. And I'll hand over now to Dr. Palmer. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we've got the microphones on because we were um, proposing to record, but we won't be recording the conversation afterwards. So uh, it's just for the purposes of um, um, our research outputs later. So thank you all for joining us today. Yes, I'm Alice Palmer. And um, I think that I know some of you in the room, thank you so much for joining us. The, the interest, I guess, that I have in this issue of uh, populism and international law really comes from my own specialties in uh, environmental law and in particular international law. And so there's often um, an interesting sort of intersection around uh, these questions uh, for us to sort of ponder through that lens. But I'm looking forward today to hearing about these issues um, in a much broader sense. Uh, we're joined uh, by two uh, very esteemed speakers, we have uh, Professor Peter Danchen from University of Maryland, uh, Kerry uh, uh, Law School, School of Law, and um, we also have uh, Professor Joe Ford from ANU College of Law. It's always lovely to have colleagues um, joining us from other schools, um, so thank you both for joining us. They're going to be speaking, um, as Margaret was saying, to this, um, to this question around the role of international law in the rise of populism um, and also speaking to their own uh, Australian Research Council grant uh, and, and the project that they're um, launching uh, in, in last year and, and going forward. So thank you both for joining us. We're planning on uh, sort of having them both speak for about an hour, for about half an hour each, and then we'll um, go to all of you for questions. So thank you very much. If you could all join me in welcoming our speakers. Thanks. Terrific, terrific. Well, thank you very much, Margaret and Alice, for the uh, the warm introduction. It, it really is wonderful to be here at Melbourne Law School um, uh, to see some old friends and colleagues and to see uh, all of you. Thank you for coming. Um, I graduated from this law school in um, 1994, which if I check my calendar is almost 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> which is somewhat alarming, mostly to me. Um, but it's, it's wonderful to be here, and uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about some of the, the big picture themes, key ideas and themes um, in an ARC project that we had just, under, uh, just undertaken. 
Um, and then my colleague, Joe Ford, is going to speak about some of the empirical and other work of the project itself that's building on some of those themes. So I'll speak for about 25 minutes um, and Joe the same, and then we look forward to comments and conversation with all of you. And of course, really looking for some feedback on what you think about some of the ways we're pursuing these ideas. So where to begin? Well, I think the origins and implications of the current backlash to inter international legal norms and institutions more broadly uh, is arguably one of the most pressing and perplexing uh, issues in the field of international law today. And we seem to be at a moment when the modern internationalist vision, and this is what is often stated, of multilateral cooperation and global governance is understood to be under some form of assault, perhaps to even be unraveling. And when ideas of supranational organization and post-national sovereignty are seemingly being resisted and interestingly resisted in some of the key liberal democratic states that have long built and championed some of these structures. Uh, structures. Uh, in our early work on these issues, we explored some of these questions in the context of the, the COVID pandemic. And in a piece that we, we jointly uh, authored in the American Journal of International Law, we explored some of the implications of what seemed to be the irony that the COVID pandemic exposed the inherent logic and necessity of an effective international legal order at the very moment, it seemed, when that order was under sustained assault by populist forces around the world. Again, as I say, startlingly in states like the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, um, to a lesser extent, um, uh, at that very moment. The causes of this backlash are of course infinitely complex and multifaceted, but what's really interesting in the field is that international lawyers tell a broadly familiar and common story. Following the disastrous consequences of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and 2003 is a pivotal date in the story. And then secondly, the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, and the attendant years of really two sets of forces in international affairs, neoconservative American foreign policy on the one hand, and neoliberal economic policy on the other. In the wake of these two sets of forces, a populist backlash really emerged probably most uh, obviously around 2014, uh, that opposes not only conceptions of global governance, but key tenets of what we regard as the modern liberal international legal order. Now, what's interesting in critical scholarship on international law is that scholars have begun to look at how some of these currents can be traced to contradictions internal to the normative structure of the field itself and in particular, and this is what I'm going to mainly speak about, um, understandings today of sovereignty under what we might call the conditions of technological globalization. Some have gone further uh, and argued that the, these developments, in fact, portend something deeper, uh, perhaps even an existential crisis of values within the field that goes well beyond the academic tendency to explain the entirety of backlash phenomena in terms of economic factors and material well-being. And I want to suggest that we need to move beyond that kind of frame of the problem. So these are the big questions that we're asking in our project, which is a five-year project just getting um, underway. Uh, and what I'd like to do is address three issues in particular. First, how should we understand Brexit, the ascent to power of Trump, and increasingly populist movements 
in especially Western liberal democratic states first, the most obvious question. Secondly, how should we understand and respond to this anti, seemingly anti-globalist populism and backlash uh, within the field of international law? Is there in fact a, an existential crisis of values that's driving resentment against something called the liberal international order? Uh, and thirdly, uh, has international law in its contemporary form, perhaps even counterintuitively, served to incubate the varieties of populism and what is sometimes termed illiberal democracy and contributed to the rising cynicism that we see regarding the field of international law. And this is the, is the elephant in the room question, right? About turning the lens, not seeing international law as under assault per se, but asking to what extent international law is in fact implicated uh, and part of the phenomenon we see uh, unfolding before our eyes. And what I wish to suggest um, is that we need to listen carefully and try to understand the deep roots of this phenomenon, not only socio-politically and normatively uh, as international lawyers, but within the, the terms of the longer intellectual history of international law itself. And this kind of work I think is only just beginning. There are some in the room who do brilliant work in this, uh, in, in this mold, but there's a lot more work I think that needs to be done to trace the longer intellectual histories that have led us to this uh, moment. And, and we hope to contribute to some of that discussion as well. So let me turn then first to the question of backlash. The phenomenon now is so well documented that it's almost a cliche. Johnson, Trump, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Orban, Erdogan, Modi, Morrison. Uh, threats to withdraw or, or perhaps even outright assault key international institutions are legion the UN Human Rights Council, the World Health Organization, WTO, the Paris Climate Agreement, the ICC, uh, take your pick of multilateral uh, regimes. I, of course, live in the United States and um, perhaps have a, have a different vantage point on this to many Australians, but the scope and level of American disengagement from traditional treaty and multilateral regimes over the last 20 years is literally staggering from arms control to international criminal law to environmental regulation, the law of the sea, human rights treaties, uh, you literally can look in any field of international law uh, and you'll find that the US has either rejected or withdrawn from the vast majority of multilateral treaties and particularly their supervisory mechanisms. So if we step back from this bewildering complexity of events playing out before us, we might observe that we, we seem to be at another one of those moments in the history of international law uh, of great ferment and foment and turmoil as competing legal and moral vocabularies seemingly clash against each other. Uh, and the inherited language of the modern state system and of international law itself no longer seems to capture and give voice to important groups and interests, particularly in, in political life. This clash of vocabularies that, that we've seen makes visible what I think is a latent ambiguity in the term liberal international order, uh, liberal international order uh, itself. As several scholars have noted, the backlashes have presented no frontal attack on the premises of national sovereignty itself, or indeed on what we might call the Westphalian uh, foundations of the UN charter structure. Indeed, there's almost an evident uh, withdrawal 
to the, the space of the nation state and an almost palpable nostalgia for a return to a kind of Westphalian sovereignty that somehow is imagined to exist before the accelerated effects of technological globalization. Rather, and this is quite striking, it seems that backlash movements and political forces have targeted their ire on what we might call the post-Cold War vocabulary of globalization and transnational governance, and the implicit critique of national sovereignty and collective values that I think lies internal to these discourses. Their target has thus been the rise since the early 90s of specialized government, uh, governance regimes in functional areas such as trade, human rights, environment, security, migration, and so on, uh, and the ensuing proliferation of complex managerial vocabularies that speak neither about sovereignty nor about rules, but about objectives, values, and interests behind them. And of course, the work of Marty Koskinemi here is, is what I'm really gesturing towards, uh, and David Kennedy. This global governance conception of international law, I want to suggest, has steadily surpassed older visions of the field and has really become the mainstream narrative today, the almost assumed background uh, of international legal work over the last 30 years, at least in mainstream discussions of the field. Consider, for example, the obvious starting point of the field of international trade law. The dominant story told since the early 90s is that everybody wins under a free trade, uh, international free trade regime, because free trade is a rising tide that lifts all boats, or because it uh, increases the overall size of the economic pie so that winners can compensate losers with everyone better off in the end. The result, we're told, is an increase in the prospects of both peace and prosperity. And as uh, Thomas Friedman infamously quipped in 1996, have two, cap two countries with a McDonald's in their capital ever gone to war with each other? Well, with Ukraine in ruins today, uh, this aphorism and its end of history narratives have not aged too well. But notably, this thesis has been a key point of convergence for both neoliberal conservatives who see no need to question relative gains or whether economic gains themselves are the right measure to be maximizing, or social democrats who see only a modest role for redistribution uh, of gains. So what I want to suggest in, in, in fairly crude terms is that the current populist moment has arisen in strong opposition to both of these interrelated faces of the global governance narrative that underpins much modern uh, international law and institutions. So what then have been the responses that we see? Well, my observation is that there's a tendency, particularly in academic circles, particularly in rooms like this, to dismiss populists and their rage uh, as nothing more than neo-fascists or perhaps atavistic nationalists, or more famously deplorables, whom we simply need to better educate about the obvious and apodictic values of liberal democratic rule. There is a further tendency, which I wish to suggest we should resist, to explain the entirety of this phenomena in terms of economic factors and material well-being, as I, as I said earlier. Many commentators have pointed to uh, Branko Milanovic's famous uh, elephant curve explanation, which shows the changes in income distribution across the world roughly between 1988 and 2008, the 20-year period. The chart shows four groups, 
two of whom have prospered enormously and two of whom have stagnated. The first is comprised of the middle classes in the emerging economies of China and India. And the second, of course, is the 0.0, the 0.01% uh, that Bernie Sanders speaks incessantly about. On the other hand, the third is the middle and lower middle classes, especially of the developed states. Uh, and the last is the poorest of the poor in developing, in so-called developing states. As Koskinyemi has recently observed, the liberal, liberal understanding is to see the recent backlash as a kind of social pathology. The solution to the pathology is the impulse to double down and reform and renew existing institutions. For example, by talking about more principled policymaking, the values we all obviously share, uh, and making regimes more efficient and effective. This, it is hoped, may forestall states retreating from global engagement and seeking to re realign in smaller, more proximate orders that are thought better to promote their core interests. But as these scholars point out, the difficulty today is that populists don't seem interested in the reform of institutions that are already seen by them as illegitimate. As Joseph Weiler and Koskinyemi and others have recently noted, that the palpable sense you get is that these movements feel defeated. They have lost and somebody else has won. Trump's image of the forgotten men and women of our country resonates viscerally in the United States and politically for a very obvious reason. And I drive every holiday in the United States from Baltimore to Cleveland across the, the early parts of the Midwest. And you actually can see some of the effects of this in particularly states like Ohio uh, in the United States. On this understanding, the analogy of globalization is perhaps to a train ride with the tracks already set, which has simply left some passengers behind who we need to go back and get on the train. But these critical scholars point out that this is a fatally flawed analogy. The populists hate the idea of the train and wouldn't ride it even if you bought them a ticket. If this is correct, we need to distinguish between legitimate protest and anger at something that is occurring in the world on the one hand and the, the political manipulation that legitimate, uh, of that legitimate feeling on the other. And here, and here we come to the center of what I wish to argue, we confront a rather startling paradox in the field of international law. All of the accounts that I've read of backlash phenomena trace its sort of contemporary origins, and there have been, of course, earlier historical periods, uh, particularly in American history, in roughly the same period, and that is the late 1960s and early 1970s. Many of you have, of course, read Sam Moyne's The Last Utopia, where he traces the, the moment when human rights assumed its stature as what he calls the ultimate moral arbiter of international conduct to the early 1970s. And his subsequent book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, then traces the rise of human rights law uh, uh, in this period in relation to the effects, the accelerating effects of globalization. So what I want to suggest, perhaps again counterintuitively, is that there's something vitally important about our new politics in the last 30 or 40 years that is key to understanding what is happening today. And this may strike many of you as implausible, but let me try to lay out the, the argument. In a chapter titled Human Rights in the Neoliberal Maelstrom, Moyne actually explores um, 
the, the linkages between human rights values and neoliberal policies. He notes that beginning in the 1970s, nationally welfare states entered crisis and globally market fundamentalism led to literally exploding inequality uh, in and between many nations. At the same time, he notes that human rights were reimagined as international tools of status equalization. Human rights were seen as a mechanism by which to guarantee status equality, but not distributive equality. And even perfectly realized, human rights were seen as compatible with inequality, even radical inequality. They were geared towards basic provision, but in no sense substantive equality. Formoyne, therefore, deprived of the ambience of national welfare, human rights emerged in a neoliberal, what we might call a neoliberal age, as weak tools to aim at sufficient provision alone. The political and legal project that grew in their name was thus a powerless compa companion, if you like, to the explosion of inequality. The argument is not that human rights abetted or caused neoliberalism and the subsequent economic inequality, it's rather that human rights easily accompanied it. The point is that by the 1990s, there was a marked movement away from earlier projects of national welfare and seeking more equal outcomes to the goal of making the world more humane without otherwise challenging the basic or core premises of neoliberal globalization. If we flash forward, it's only with the brilliant work of people like Thomas Piketty and the rise of populist political movements that we finally seem to have a rude awakening to this nascent uh, moral and legal order. Interestingly, and this is, I think, something I've seen very recently, thoughtful uh, human rights scholars are picking up on Moyne's argument and taking it further. I, I read recently a brilliant article by Nihal Bhutta, also a graduate of this law school. Uh, uh, and what Nihal's trying to do is attempting to recover what he calls a different register of social rights that has faded from our collective memories. Uh, so he agrees with the basic arguments of the Moyne thesis, but suggests that in fact, within the longer intellectual history of social rights and economic and social uh, uh, rights discourse more broadly, there are in fact tools that we can recover. He calls these natural social rights or collective natural rights and argues that in the 19th century, at least, ideas of social right were demand for, demands for equal social citizens and constructions of ideas of social democracy through the creation of what he calls the social democratic state. So like Moyn, Buddha seeks to understand the association of the rise of human rights law with the 1980s and 1990s ascendancy of liberal internationalism and neoliberal economics. And what he means by association here is either as a direct instrument of the morality of markets, or perhaps just more broadly as fellow travelers or all too willing companions to fateful projects of Western democracy promotion, trade and capital liberalization, constraint of non-Western de developmental states, uh, economic policies, and galloping concentration of wealth and income since 1989. The 2008 global financial crisis and waves of recession and austerity that swept the advanced capitalist world for almost a decade punctuated this optimistic vision of globalized economic and political progress and really rested on an almost 30 year unwinding of an earlier political and economic settlement in the industrialized world. So if we actually compare 
the story told by Milanovic to the story that the Buddha tries to recover, looking at the period from 1945 roughly through to 1975, he notes that this earlier period rested on four pillars, strong trade unions, mass education, high taxes, and large governmental transfers. And of course, all of this is completely overturned uh, in the ensuing uh, uh, period, very beginning in the late 1960s. Unsurprisingly, for those experiencing stagnant or steadily diminishing incomes and reduced expectations of acquiring even modest amounts of wealth, the sense is of having fallen backwards or slipped downwards in status relative to previous comparable generations, creating, in the words of Alan Tews, bewilderment, resentment, anxiety, and anger. And this notion of status anxiety, the sense of one's previously recognized social value and esteem as being driven down before one's own eyes due to deindustrialization, capital flight, economic austerity, stagnant or declining uh, life possibilities. Um, think Nomad Land, anyone who's seen uh, that film, has been both theoretically and empirically linked, of course, with support for radical anti-system political movements. And here I, I, I wanted to just end this image for you with a, with a wonderful quote by the political scientist, Jean Cohen. She says that the sources of social honor and social security in society, the forms of life, associational connections, organizations, modes of cooperation and social capital that emerge around labor, occupation, neighborhood, and region are as important to social identity and self-respect as material income. Indeed, anxiety about declining social status in economic society and disrespected socio-cultural forms of life in civil society that once gathered social honor is, is intimately related to doubts about society-wide social solidarity and about the representativeness, uh, receptivity, and responsiveness of political elites and others to the needs and concerns of ordinary people. And of course, this notion of ordinary people lies at the heart of much of the conversation about populism. So this, I think, begins to get us somewhere to the heart of the issue that lies before us. For the more critical international legal scholars, such as Viola and Kostaniemi, there is indeed, uh, at its core, a crisis of values within the field of international law. And again, counterintuitively, especially within the values of liberal democracy itself. The, the repeated holy trinity of the rule of law, democracy, and human rights, which we're told uh, constantly are indispensable and interconnected. And here we see something, again, surprising, the degree and intensity with which populism challenges both liberal democratic norms in national uh, arenas and simultaneously international legal regimes and institutions that are connected to the same uh, uh, ideas of, of rights and governance. The kind of Euroscepticism, for example, that animated the Brexit debate uh, in the United Kingdom. In the, in the field of political science, there's been brilliant work done recently by Mark Tashnet and Bojan Bugarek, um, looking at, at the, the core features of populism. And what they point to are really two ideas. First of all, the idea of the people against the elites. Of course, this I think is fairly obvious. 
And second, an imagined conception of the people as morally unified, whose will has not been manifest or imagined to be manifest through the formal structures of democratic choice. They note that populists criticize the idea of the law as non-political and neutral. And this makes populists in particular very skeptical about apex courts, the role and form of strong judicial review. This is surging through American life at the moment. Uh, and the extensive and entrenched nature of individual rights. Instead, they tend to make claims to legitimacy that rest on democratic, a democratic ideology of popular sovereignty uh, and majority rule. Um, interestingly, these, uh, these two scholars, uh, Tashnet and Bugarik, think that it's worth entertaining the view that, that contrary to what we might think, Populists may indeed have a better understanding of law as such, uh, that is, as ultimately instrumental than their critics. Looking at a wide range of case studies, they show examples of democratic, liberal, social inclusive forms of populism, which clearly demonstrate that authoritarianism and anti-pluralism are not necessarily the key elements of populism. Of course, there are many forms of authoritarian uh, populism, but this is not a necessary aspect of what we see unfolding in politics uh, around the world. Following uh, scholars, they argue that the populist surge is in fact an illiberal democratic response to decades of undemocratic liberal principles. So this brings us perhaps to another elephant in the room, which is our contemporary conception uh, and tradition of liberal values and liberal rights. For many scholars, one of the deep problems with liberalism, the appealing and seductive idea that we give the individual the autonomy, the autonomy to uh, choose the destiny of one's life has been, as I've tried to suggest, this close association or unfolding that we've seen uh, with neoliberalism and unending economic austerity. Particularly in left-wing politics and political movements, social democrats have become very at home speaking about human rights while simultaneously speaking the language of privatization, markets, and austerity. And as scholars like Philip Alston uh, have long argued, the language of economic, social, and cultural rights has been largely marginalized uh, uh, within these political discourses and orders. Of course, the United States is not even party to the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. Instead, the discourse has been relentlessly individualistic and about self-interest and happiness, usually measured in terms of prosperity. It talks about the conditions for individual and collective action in largely procedural terms as lawyers, but says little about its content other than the master value of individual choice and increasingly anti-discrimination. Values such as patriotism and identity that we find in nationalist discourses and obligation and responsibility that we find often in religious discursive traditions pr provide, of course, sources of meaning to individuals and communities beyond self-interest. But these are not things that we talk about, right? For an international lawyer to begin a conversation about patriotism is to automatically be suspect, I would suggest, uh, or about re uh, religious traditions as a source of meaning uh, in political life. Joseph Weiler himself, of course, a very prominent international lawyer, has recognized this and has, has argued, and I quote, 
that our historical mistake was to fail to understand the importance of collective values uh, and to adapt them to modern progressive narratives. We can respect love of society and country and couple rights and duties and have healthy respect for one's collective identity and culture. Uh, this, is, this can be part of a liberal tradition of rights, but it's not the way we either think about or practice our politics today, uh, 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 especially in law. So for Weiler, his suggestion is that until we fill this void in our thinking, we will be left with the likes of Orban uh, and his pals. Of course, another sort of more communitarian scholar who's taken his work in a very similar direction recently is the Harvard philosopher, Michael Sandel. And Sandel's latest book charts the rise of what he sees as a corrosive left-wing individualism, which he terms the, the rhetoric of rising. The idea that the solution to problems of globalization and inequality is that those who work hard and play by the rules should be able to rise as far as their effort and talents will take them. Sandel frontally attacks this proposition from two directions. First, the fabled level playing field remains fictional uh, uh, in, in most states. If you actually look, and I've just gone through this with a daughter about to enter college, if you look at college admissions to elite schools in the United States, Ivy League schools in the United States, there's almost a direct parallel to Milanovic's elephant curve within college uh, admissions. Two thirds of students at Ivy League universities in the United States come from the top fifth of the income scale. And I find this both amusing and, and catastrophic at the same time. Surveys of those very students suggest that they all are convinced that their success is a result solely of their own effort. <laughs> uh, so this, this is something I find uh, really quite striking in thinking about parallels in our politics today. But there is a second deeper, darker side perhaps to this left liberal consensus. The implication is that those who do not rise in this meritocracy will have no one to blame but themselves. In a globalizing world, the choice is no longer between left and right, but between open and closed. Open means the free flow of capital, goods, people across borders. This is said to be not only irreversible, but also a laudable state of affairs. To object, Sandel says, in any way is to be closed-minded, prejudiced, hostile to cosmopolitan identities. So working-class people are given a double-edged invitation to either on the one hand better themselves or on the other carry the burden of their own failure. And here, I think it, it always comes back to me in these conversations, of Hillary Clinton's famous statement during the, the first election against Donald Trump. She was campaigning in West Virginia and she was asked what would happen if democratic policies on climate change were implemented and all the coal mines in West Virginia had to be shut down. And she famously said that the Democrats would offer re-education centers for coal miners in West Virginia. And at that moment, I knew the election was over. <laughs> So for Sandel, the populist backlash of recent years has been a revolt against the tyranny of merit, as it, as it has been experienced by those who feel humiliated by meritocracy and indeed by this entire political project. And this is deeply uncomfortable, I think, for many of us who are invested in and even educated within the terms of this project. 
But it's this deep sense of resentment against elites that I think easily explains the political appeal of otherwise implausible figures, such as Donald Trump, whose popularity increases as the elites take more and more action to delegitimize him. Legitimately, I would, I would add. So let me just offer some concluding um, thoughts uh, following this, this uh, argument, I guess. Uh, what does all this mean for international law and particularly what we're trying to do in this project? First of all, is anything that we've said accurate and persuasive in terms of understanding the world? But secondly, if it is, how can, we, how can this help us to understand engagement under international law today and even reimagining some of the terms of international uh, legal discourse? Um, I've tried to argue that the far-reaching normative shift that we've seen towards a global governance conception, if you like, of international law has paradoxically generated tremendous anxiety and insecurity even in national political communities. The idea in this legal imaginary is almost to displace sovereignty as the international legal norm, if you like, and replace it with global approaches that can more effectively work across artificial national boundaries in pursuit of objectives that have nothing territorially limited about them. And one of the things I, when I teach international law today, I notice is the falling away of territory as an organizing concept in international law. Right? When we teach these different regimes, we speak about rights and about the objectives of the law, but we think of territory as a secondary or even meaningless um, uh, concept, right? Humans have rights, it doesn't matter what territory. Uh, they, uh, they stand within or, or on. The question for us is how to realize rights in a global uh, sense. If I'm right about this, uh, and that the normative terrain in the field has changed dramatically within the last 30 years, I want international lawyers to ask a different question. And that question would be something like the following. How, if at all, can we positively, is it possible to positively justify uh, the authority and normativity of the sovereignty of the nation state. Uh, it's interesting when I ask lawyers this question, the, the reflex always is to say that sovereignty must be justified in terms of protecting individual rights, right? The, the, the sovereignty of the state is justified or legitimate only to the extent that it protects human rights. And of course, this automatic move plays into the very conception of international law that I'm suggesting lies at the source of the difficulty. So this can't be the answer I'm looking for, but I don't have necessarily a better answer, right? What is the theoretical account that lawyers can give today for the nation state, the sovereignty of the nation state, other than as an obstacle to global progress or global regimes? of rights uh, or other important objectives. And here the practical question of national authority is, is especially pressing. Interestingly, for populist movements, it doesn't matter if, if they lose GDP because of Brexit or if the heartland in the United States suffers under Trump. The sense is how much worse could things get? Rather, the sense is we are now at the bottom and we need to take back control in the words of Koskinyemi both in terms of political authority and national sovereignty. So in terms of longer intellectual genealogies, as international lawyers, have we finally acceded to or perhaps even realized the dream imagined so long ago 
um, in the 18th century of Immanuel Kant's universal history with a cosmopolitan purpose. Do we in fact view international law as ultimately grounded in a global morality of human rights? And as Jeremy Waldron argued in the European Journal recently, view national sovereign states as having the primary duty to fulfill government functions, almost as, as uh, functional jurisdictions, if you like, of a putative global international legal regime. If we look to the 1990s in particular, we immediately see two striking experiences in the field, which Koskinyemi and Kennedy and others have written about at length, and I'll just flag them. Um, the first, which uh, Margaret Young as well has written about in her work, is the problem of legal knowledge in terms of the fragmentation of international law into incommensurable regimes requiring highly technical skills to be managed. Uh, Durkheim's prophecy of interdependence turning a pre-modern system of sovereignties into a single organic rational world society administered by technical experts. Uh, is that the image that we, that we have today? And if so, which is the right regime? How is this authority allocated? Uh, how is jurisdiction allocated? And of course, many scholars have pointed to the enormous conflicts that we see within regime fragmentation in international law on these issues. The second, of course, as I've discussed, is the problem of morality. Human rights are often seen as a response to the experience of deformalization in law, and rights are seen as a means to override technical calculations. Dworkin's famous idea of rights as trumps. But what we instead see in the field is that all preferences gradually get trans, uh, all preferences become translated into the rights of a preference holder. We have overlapping and multiple committees to balance competing rights claims. And what we actually see playing out in practice is regimes of knowledge conflicting with each other and claims of justice fighting with each other for different uh, outcomes in particular cases. And here again, there's a striking commonality in the literature that this is the source of a lot of the cynicism that arises between the gap of expectation and experience, where we see on the one hand, the rejection of expert knowledge, which is now seen as merely elite privilege, and on the other, the rejection of politics, um, because mainstream parties are seen as, as, as not representative of anything other than their own self-interest. And of course, again, the rise of Trump in the United States is, is, is astounding because his most remarkable achievement was not to uh, overcome the Democrats, it was to overcome the Republicans. But he basically destroyed both sides of the, uh, of the political status quo. Um, so let me conclude there. Uh, I think if, if I'm correct about any of this, the challenge that lies before us is how to reclaim international legal contestation as a conversation about global justice. Perhaps we could even say as a new kind of enlightenment and to reimagine what enlightenment might mean uh, in our time. And here I think there are two lines of thought that I'm particularly interested in your thoughts and, and us pursuing in our project. The first of course is to rethink the place and relation of collective values and conceptions of community that are grounded today in ideas and traditions of rationalism and universalism that oppose enlightenment to myth. But of course, as critical lines of scholarship have long uh, uh, raised fears of what was sometimes termed the, the dialectic of enlightenment. 
of the totalizing instrumentalist and dehumanizing implications of enlightenment itself turned into myth. And I don't have time to lay out this argument, but I think what we're seeing in the field is an almost kind of reversal within liberal thought of the subject-object relation with the human today, not as a subject of rights, but seen as the object of an otherwise impersonal legal and political order. And again, this is a bleak image, but perhaps explanatorily accurate in terms of what we see in some of these political movements. Uh, and secondly, to confront the kind of cynicism that we see of backlash movements, we of course need to rethink the politics of technocratic expertise of the kind we see in international legal regimes or democratic states today. Uh, and our understanding of the ways in which power and knowledge production operate within existing legal regimes. And of course, that's another whole seminar, but I think sustained work is really only just beginning on some of these lines of thought. Uh, and these, this is what we look forward to pursuing over the coming years of, uh, of this project. So thank you. That's Peter, and thank you to everyone for having us this afternoon. It's good to see some old and good friends too. Uh, so I was going to speak mainly to the project itself uh, and some of the um, some of the design aspects of the project, mostly because it's very undercooked, and any opportunity we have at this early stage in our project to expose our undercooked thinking to anyone, but especially to uh, Melbourne Law School people, uh, is very welcome to us. So thank you for coming on and also acknowledging Richard and, and Sandhya and their, their parallel in some ways project, which is so interesting. So uh, Peter's talked about um, this challenge in recent years to the legitimacy and utility of international law, international legal institutions, decision-making institutions, and supranational mechanisms, and how it's surprising that this challenge has come from the very powers that have benefited so much from these institutions and normative regimes, in particular the United States. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about the backlash concept as we see it in our project, because one of the things we do in our project is to, is to critically analyze this idea of a populist backlash or backlash, whether it's driven by populism or not. And we do that because if you actually un unpin or unpack the term backlash as we see it, it contains within it the connotation of something legitimate. We don't, otherwise we would talk about an attack on an international institution, which suggests it's unprovoked, unexpected, unexplainable, unjustified. But when we use the term backlash, it carries within it the connotation of someone has overreached has, has, has disconnected from their constituency. And then there's something legitimate about this pushback against it. And that's one of the things in our project that we're trying to, to address is, is the prevailing literature talking about this pathological force of populism and backlash against wonderful international law and all its institutions. And how could this possibly happen and how can we fix it? And one of the things we interrogate a lot is this idea of backlash. And what was it about the structure and operations of the international system um, that may have overreached in some ways, may have disconnected from people and popular concerns in some ways. Um, I can't go any further without plugging my book. 
<laughs> so as part of this project, I have a book coming out, uh, was coming out in September, October, uh, which is just called Human Rights and Populism. And one of the things that does is to, to say, contrary to all the literature that talks about all the terrible things that populists have done to human rights, it sort of flips that question and asks, how did we, what did we, being the Human Rights Academy, the Human Rights Movement, what did we do, what have we done that has rendered this wonderful universal project of rights for all so easily susceptible to delegitimization by populist politi politicians, to uh, scapegoating? How did universal rights for all become so easily portrayed as just narrow legalistic claims of a leftist elite in favor of undeserving, typically immigrant minorities? So rather than sort of focusing on the populists, focusing on ourselves as a sort of reflective challenge to the academy. And it interrogates again that concept of backlash um, and this idea that international law and international human rights is some sort of passive victim of this pathological force as opposed to having some role in, as Peter put it, incubating the conditions for this phenomenon as we see it. So um, at the nexus of of populism and international law, I suppose, there's many conceptions of populism, as, as some in the room know so well. Um, it's really this, we see it at the end of the day as this suggestion of how populism as, as an idea of how can we get a more pure expression of popular will, unmediated through institutions, unconstrained by institutions. And what is the role of elite governance in depriving the popular mass popular will the majority um, of of their participation in that process and their benefit from that process and what we do in our project is to select a number of international institutions uh, or and four countries electoral democracies marked as we see it in the last decade by populist politicking and undertake something of a more empirical account of how and whether hot populist politicking at the domestic electoral level may or may not have translated into the ways in which those countries engaged in international governance, supranational governance at the international level. So the institutions that we look at are the UN Security Council, the UN Human Rights Council, the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization, very different things, but dealing with public health, peace, security, human rights and trade. Um, and in four jurisdictions, the United States, the UK from the Brexit period onwards, uh, India under uh, Prime Minister Modi and the Philippines. But of course, Australia, and Peter mentioned this, Australia is not in, uh, immune to this phenomenon. And one of the stimulants for our project was uh, former Prime Minister Morrison in, the, in 2019 in his Lowy Institute address, who gave a speech, a passage of which I grew up in Zimbabwe. If you had told me that President Mugabe, arch-populist nationalist, had said this sentence, I would have absolutely believed you. And he said, you know, we are a sovereign state and we will not be dictated to by unelected uh, international globalist bureaucrats in Geneva and New York. And I need to commission a review into Australia's membership of all international treaty regimes and international bodies. Uh, and that's the sort of phenomenon that we're start trying to study in our project. As it happens that um, review of international organizations and membership of organizations was quietly sort of 
killed in the city where I live in, in Canberra, by this sort of faceless bureaucratic elite who didn't see it as in, in Australia's interest. But that's deeply ironic to us because if that's so, then it plays into the critique that populists have, that popular will is being mediated through these unaccountable elites who just quietly put away any projects that don't seem to suit their interests. So in international law, we talk about this benevolent, in, invisible college of people who govern the world, and, and it's a good thing, but to the populist, it's precisely a problem. So, as I said, uh, we're trying to critique this idea of, of this external pathological thing that's uh, undermining international law and the international rule of law and ask the, the extent to which um, patterns in international law and international governance have contributed to that. Um, what, we're, what we're doing as the first part of our work, sort of taking as given the phenomenon of populism without interrogating it necessarily in, in the, the one piece that we're working on too deeply is to try and draw out an analytical framework of what it would look like to analyze the ways in which states have engaged with or disengaged from international law and governance during this decade era of populism that we're looking, looking at. And that's what I hope to briefly lay out um, for discussion with you uh, today to get your ideas. And really, it's a part of our attempt to move beyond the binary that we see in the literature on populism and international law, that states are either engaging with international law or they're disengaging and withdrawing. And obviously, we see a much more sophisticated spectrum across there, and we're trying to uh, understand what that spectrum might look at. And also distinguish between mere rhetoric, we're going to leave every international treaty body and we're going to disable and defund these mechanisms and bodies, rhetoric about that, mainly directed at a domestic audience and actual activity or follow-up activity that does those things that are threatened. And we think that spectrum, which I'm about to try and sketch, is useful irrespective of whether the driver of engagement or disengagement is populism or some other thing, or partly populism and partly uh, some other things. So that's the sort of typology that I'm going to very imperfectly attempt to sketch. So there's a few things in this typology that we put aside, really, um, which are sort of the why, we put aside the why question and two how questions. The why question is about drivers. Why, why is there growth in populism and populist sentiment and populist politicking? Uh, what are the popular drivers, uh, drivers for it? And then other questions that we, at this stage, have also put aside. How, if there is this phenomenon, this driver, how is it, trans, uh, what are the transmission vectors by which it affects the ways in which states behave at the international level um, in engaging or disengaging from international mechanisms and institutions? And also, how is it manifesting, how is that populism manifesting in the behavior um, of those states themselves? We're also putting aside what I call the so what question for now, which is the sort of effects so assuming that there's a populist driver to that shapes state behavior when it comes to engaging with international law and institutions, the so what question asks, what was the effect of this disengagement or enhanced engagement or withdrawal or whatever it happens to be from uh, an international institution? That's obviously a sort of empirical question, but it comes with a whole lot of normative assumptions about um, 
what effects, how would we know, when would we know whether those effects have taken place in terms of effects on the legitimacy or effectiveness of institutions and governance, and whose perspective are we taking when we say there have been certain positive or negative uh, effects. So what does our incipient framework look like? Well, this is, as I said, exposing us exposing our undercooked analysis to you, but essentially we come up with an attempted typology of state engagement uh, with international institutions, and it looks something like, like this. So here we put disengagement here on one end of the spectrum to engagement here. So on this spectrum here, we, we might call this committed engagement. And, and this is, is uh, disengagement of the sort where it's a rejection of the international institutional order that we may be studying. And we're trying to study and plot state behavior across this spectrum in a way, but with another axis uh, going up here, which looks like this. Constructive effects of engagement all the way down to destructive. And of course, it'll only take you a second to say, well, if you're going to do that, you need to have a theory of the good. What is con constructive? Constructive of what or destructive of what order? And across this spectrum, because most of the literature on populism and how it's shaping states' engagement or disengagement with international law just has this binary effect. States are disengaging. And Peter himself mentioned it in outlining the project. That's the characterization of the literature. Populism comes along in Western liberal democracies and electoral democracies. States start to withdraw from international institutions, start to scapegoat international institutions. You would all have jobs if it weren't for the World Trade Organization. We could deport people back to their country uh, who are preaching hate on our streets if it wasn't for the European Court of Human Rights stopping us from doing that. So drawing into the domestic political debate, international institutions and discrediting them, delegitimizing them, undermining them. That's the backlash phenomenon. So across the spectrum might be all sorts of behaviors that might be, for example, resistant engagement like this, or defiant engagement, through to reformist, but not fully committed engagement because they want to change certain things. And somewhere in the middle here, a sort of Hillary Charlesworth type ritualistic or perfunctory engagement, neither here nor there. They're not withdrawing, but they're not you know, fully committed uh, on whatever sort of normative basis you describe that. And likewise, on the vertical axis, a state which is uh, not necessarily constructively engaged, but it's kind of somewhere over here, or a state that's not this destructive of the international legal project or mechanism or institution, but it's obstructive in some way. Yeah, you might say, I don't know, non-constructive, but not necessarily obstructive or destructive. And what we're trying to do is chart uh, a number of things so that we could say, for example, because we're based at the ANU and the federal government is our major stakeholder, we could say to an Australian policymaker, in relation to institution A uh, and country number two, uh, we could characterize their behavior as a result of the election of this populist leader as being somewhere over there. So it's resistant 
in engagement terms, but it's constructive in terms of Australia's foreign policy objectives. Or this behavior is looks like committed engagement, but it's actually destructive of the of the particular objectives that, in this case, the Australian government seeks to pursue. So it's an emerging kind of conceptual framework, but it has a, a number of problems that we're already alive to. For example, underneath here, a framework like this would always need, I think, we think, would always need, for example, a question of time, because I'm going to say that's time, because behavior by a state, whether or not driven by populist politicking, behavior by a state that looks to be destructive of a particular international legal order might simply be the beginning or the birth of a new international legal order. And so it's actually constructive viewed across the next 20 or 30 years when we realize that what looked like highly destructive behaviors were actually uh, the process of a new international legal order or new regime or new institution coming into being. Uh, and a lot of the analysis that we're engaging in is also playing with the sequence of some of these things. Because, for example, for the health of the international legal order, it might be more healthy for the international order for a state to be engaged in a resistant or defiant way than in a merely ritualistic uh, or perfunctory way. Yes, it's resistant and defiant, but at least it's engaged. So these are some of the things that we're trying to explore as we look across our case study countries and we look at issues like the Philippines threatening to withdraw from the International Criminal Court or the United States uh, withdrawing in June 2018 from the UN Human Rights Council, what have you, and trying to plot them on some sort of a conceptual framework like this to to add to the literature on populism and international law, which so far we find a bit unsatisfactory because it just talks about there's all these patterns in Western democracy and liberal democracy and electoral democracy, and it's leading to states disengaging with international law. And we just are trying to add to that with a little bit more of a uh, think piece uh, model to try and be able to eventually in a kind of practical sense map how states might have where they might situate might, where they might be situated state a in relation to institution number two but also to be able to track that over time so over time despite their populist rhetoric they moved from being uh maybe this is better they moved from being down here somewhere resistant and defiant and quite destructive of the objectives of the appellate tribunal of the world trade organization we can start saying well they're trending towards uh somewhere over here where they're more committed and engaged and making more constructive contributions but we're highly aware as the as we need to be that these sorts of terms are deeply value laden and one of the things in our in our discussions with our australian government counterparts uh in foreign affairs and so on, is that because of this constant rhetoric that we have in Australia about the rules-based international order, to be aware that, as I said earlier, what appears to be behavior that, that might be described as destructive might actually be 
And especially when you add the pejorative term of populism, it's populist-driven destructive disengagement from international law. There's lots of D words in there. Destructive disengagement viewed from another perspective might be a totally legitimate challenge to the legitimacy, inclusivity, responsiveness of international governance. And so we're trying to plot this in that way against our case studies uh, without biting off a little bit too much, even for a five-year project. So I hope some of this makes sense. Uh, I didn't want to go on for too long. Thank you so much for your time and joining us today. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.